0: You're tuned into How To OT, making research more accessible and more consumable for the occupational therapy practitioner. Here's your host, Matt Brandenburg. Today on How To OT, we speak with Dr. Ben Phillip about connecting neuroscience to people's lives and the level of disability that they experience due to a brain or nerve injury. We also discuss the implications of handedness in therapeutic interventions as well as some other important neuroscience principles that you can apply to your practice. All right, I'm here with Dr. Philip, who is the director and creator of the Neuroscience and Rehabilitation Lab at Washington University in St. Louis. He is also a member of the Society for Neuroscience, the Neural Control of Movement Society, the American Congress of Rehabilitation Medicine, and the Society for Neurorehabilitation. Dr. Philip, thanks for being here today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And you've had a very successful scientific career so far, um, at least in my opinion, (laughs) and the opinion of others due to your awards and recognitions. And you've done some really interesting research and I wanted to ask you what really inspired you to want to collaborate with occupational therapists. The reason
1: I, so my, my background is all in neuroscience and a few years ago I had the opportunity to come here to Boston University program in occupational therapy and this, this was really exciting to me because it was a chance to really bring all the great laboratory neuroscience that is done in in human participants and patients and volunteers and and connect that to actual patient lives. It's something that's always really hard in science is going from discovery to actually getting things to people, finding ways to actually affect people in the ways that they care about, and that's what occupational therapy does so I'm really excited to to be here where I can bridge that gap between laboratory science and
0: patients and what patients love. That's awesome. That's amazing. And that is the main goal of this podcast as well, to kind of give researchers like yourself a platform to provide clinical recommendations or share their findings uh, in an easily accessible and consumable way. Um, So it can get out there and kind of bridge that gap like you mentioned. Um, Can you talk to us a little bit about what you do in the neuroscience and rehab lab? We study a couple
1: of different questions that are based around how the brain controls movement. Um, I'm especially interested in handedness and how the different hemispheres of the brain interact in order to produce handedness um, and how we can change those mechanisms and influence those mechanisms to help. Um, patients and clients whose dominant hands get injured, and they have to learn to compensate with the non-dominant hand. Uh, this is related to questions about how the brain reacts to changes in the body, what happens after a peripheral nerve injury and in amputation. Yeah, related questions that that are kind of building towards how how we can help these patients who have these you know, chronic, irreversible unilateral injuries.
0: That's extremely interesting to me. How would you say does handedness relate? to the disability experience from a nerve injury or disorder? That is a great question that is not really
1: answered yet. Um, It turns out that a lot of the standard measures of participation and disability aren't really designed to look at what happens after a unilateral injury. Like You'd think somebody would be a lot worse off after an injury to their dominant hand as opposed to an injury to their non-dominant hand. But but the way uh, a lot of these measures have been designed is they they don't detect differences between the two groups. And if you, there are ways to kind of peel them apart and look at exact exactly, you know, if you look at the DASH, there's no difference between dominant hand and non-dominant hand injuries. But if you look at a couple of specific questions, those differences start to pop out. Yeah. Um And we're just not looking at our patients in the ways that we're, patients and clients in ways that would identify these kind of effects. why we don't know much about them. It,
0: it seems like it would make sense if someone injures their dominant side, they will experience more difficulties and more deficits. Um, I know from personal experience, I've broken both of my thumbs. Uh, and when I broke my non-dominant uh, thumb, my my whole hand is immobilized in a cast. And I had an easier time doing things like putting my socks on or, you know, I could still write and take notes while I'm in school. Um, but when I broke my dominant side, uh, I really struggled. Um, and I had to teach myself to take notes. Um, I think I got up to like maybe a fifth grade writing level with my with my non-dominant hand. Um, so anecdotally, it makes sense that, that when you hurt your dominant side, there would be more more difficulties. And one of the things you've studied is kind of non-dominant hand training. And uh, what the, what does non-dominant hand training do in recovery of a nerve injury? So
1: um, I've only studied it so far in the context of healthy adults, and we found that we we were looking at how the the brain changes as you learn a non-dominant hand skill, and we were really surprised at how really effective this training was. We gave people basically 20 minutes of training a day for 10 days, and people got not only got a lot better, but most people stayed better six months later. But this was just at one specific task. It was a drawing task. Um, we don't know whether they're better at anything else with their non-dominant hand, or it's just this one thing. And those are, those are real questions that we're going to have to address to find good ways to help people who have these dominant hand impairments.
0: Okay. So in conclusion, practicing one specific task can improve and sustain Improved performance of that task. Yeah. Any, I mean, well, any, anything you practice at, you will probably get better at. It's true. <laughs> um,
1: but are there, it would be great if we had things that, that you could practice that would give you kind of underlying capacity to be better at all kinds of things with that hand.
0: But what, what those are, we don't know. Um, so it sounds like we'll, we'll stay up to date on the neuroscience and rehab lab to, to see if there's an answer to that one. <laughs> I so, um, I wanted to ask, I've heard this before, uh, just kind of by word of mouth about non-dominant hand training and that it may play a role in preventing neurodegenerative disease. Um, have you heard anything about I, that? I have and I kind of doubt it. In the, I'm skeptical of
1: it and this is an opinion sense, so not in a, not in a thorough scientific answer sense. Um, training at, there's a lot of, um, research been done on all kinds of you know, brain training kind of things that are supposed to stave off, you know, Alzheimer's and things like that, that are, you know, people making money trying to sell these products. And there, there's not a lot of evidence of their generalization uh, that, you know, getting better at practicing these tasks doesn't make you better at anything but these tasks. Um And, you know, keeping your... It is true that keeping your brain active seems to ward off things like Alzheimer's, but, and I'm not an expert in this, but my understanding is that's hard to tease apart from the kind of person who is willing to, to like keep learning new skills through, you know, their, their, across the lifespan. Um, is it actually the training or is it just the, the the kind of people who are willing to do this kind of training are the kind of people who are, who are not likely to get Alzheimer's? So, so I'm skeptical of the idea that non-dominant Hand training is 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 especially good for, you know, for for these kinds of things. I think that um, you know it's likely to be exactly as useful and or unuseful as uh, as any of these other you know things you
0: can do to keep your brain and body active as you are. Awesome. Thank you for for that perspective. Um, I couldn't get through this interview not ask, <laughs> so I appreciate it. And kind of back to to non dominant hand training specifically, you found in certain studies. That with training, speed, quality, and control and drawing with the non-dominant hand can achieve levels comparable with the dominant hand. So people can get almost as good. Um, what would you say that finding teaches us about the brain? Well, it's, um,
1: so that's that getting people as good as with the non-dominant hand with as good with the non-dominant hand as they would be with the dominant hand is something that takes years of practice. This is what we found in amputees who lost their dominant hand on average, I think, 25 years ago. Um, so, it, and they don't exactly as good as with the dominant hand, but by most measures, they get as good. Um, that, you know, the upper limit is really high, but it may take a lot of training to get there, um, which is why it's, we want to try to find ways to sort of accelerate that natural process. We don't want people to have to wait 20 years to be Good enough with their with their intact hand. Um, hopefully, we can find ways to yeah to accelerate and optimize that process.
0: And that kind of leads me to my next question: uh, How much and what kind of training would you say is most effective in improving hand function or Kind of accelerating that process, as you put. So I can speak generally to you know what what
1: makes motor learning work well. And there are things like you want to have large amounts of practice. You want to have it. Um, you want to get enough sleep. You want to um, you want to have variable practice where you're not just practicing the same you know one movement until you master it and then move on to the next. If you if you mix them up, it is it feels harder as you go along, but but long term retention is much better um for the same amount of craving. Um yeah, there's there's we don't know what the answer is specifically in the context of non dominant craving. That's
0: that's interesting though, uh, that you mentioned those factors. I think occupational therapists can be in a good position to to address those. Um you mentioned sleep specifically, a big focus of OT is being uh holistic in treatment and considering outside factors like sleep or other Personal health factors that may contribute to improvements in function, um, along with increased repetitions and changing the the types of tasks that, that are being used in therapy. Um, so thank you.
1: And the, the, the role of sleep is interesting. I'm not, this is also getting out of my wheelhouse, but some kinds of movements, the, the consolidation from, the laying down of long-term memories, including like motor skill memories, happens during sleep for some kinds of movement. So having enough sleep, I just uh, so the Society for Neuroscience conference is coming up in a couple of weeks, and I was just this morning looking through abstracts and deciding what posters to go to and talks, and there was mm-hmm. one talking about how consolidation was better if you let the participants take a nap right after practice. And like, that's all I know about it. I just read the title and I read a couple cents <laughs> of the abstract, but, but that's, uh,
0: I look forward to learning more about that myself. And that does sound very interesting. Um, I might need to bring that up to some of, uh, our professors here. <laughs> Maybe get Word some nap time. Oh gosh, every now and then I'll read some article of, you know,
1: popular science media about, you know, some New York Times focus on a lab that does sleep research and they're like, oh yeah, here we practice what we preach. Like we have nap rooms like (laughs) in the lab, like for the staff, because like, you know, this is, this is actually the way to optimize performance.
0: That's great. Yeah, that's great. And, uh, you mentioned a little bit about, uh, people who have had amputations, your background and expertise, you kind of focus on observing changes in functional connect Connectivity of the brain following task training and other interventions, um, if that's correct. And you were even part of a study finding that after more than a decade of living with an upper extremity amputation, the brain organization that controls hand grasping can be restored.
1: Yeah, it turns out so so restoring the network that is the brain networks are involved in hand grasping. If I'm remembering correctly, this is a study about hand transplant patients um people who were amputees for years for up a decade and then had an organ donor hand surgically uh on um and it turns out they're, they're grasping with their transplanted hand uses you know brain organization uh, that is pretty similar to what healthy adults do but part of that answer is because the range of variability in healthy adults is really high Brain anatomy, brain functional anatomy in particular, varies a lot from person to person. Inter-individual differences are really high. Everyone's brain is different. And unfortunately, we don't know whether the hand transplant patient, whether his brain is like what his was before his original injury. But we do know that his is in the range of, of, of normal.
0: No. But the range of normal is big. Absolutely. And kind of what does, what does that finding mean for people who have had amputations? Ooh, that's a tough one
1: because hand transplants are not you know this is not something your your insurance will pay for um, it's a it's an experimental technique um, because the the function they get is good um, their motor function varies but, you know it's always improving as the surgery improves but the sensation they get back is pretty poor um, and it's not clear how much of Advantage to your this is over having prostheses. Um, and particularly because of the costs of organ, of, of being a transplant recipient. Being an organ transplant recipient means you're on immunosuppressants for the rest of your life. And, you know, that's a decade off your lifespan. There's, there's a lot of, of problems and trade-offs with having to be on immunosuppressants and being uh, an organ transplant recipient. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, And for, for most patients in a wide variety of circumstances, it's worth it. Um, but for these hand transplant surgery is not yet at a point where it's good enough that people can, that this is something that people can just get. You know, there, it's the, you know, there, there are research. It it happens at all, and it's happened a few dozen times at this point. Um, because it is, you know, funded by, by research by this, these surgeries are funded by research grants, not done as a as a
0: clinical um, clinical necessity
1: okay
0: awesome yeah thank you for that and I guess you kind of mentioned with this study uh, you touched on neuroplasticity uh, a little bit and I think it's commonplace for people to relate that term neuroplasticity with children um, and their I guess increased ability to bounce back after a TBI or a stroke um, but it's also apparent in, in adults as well is that correct? Yeah, I mean, neuroplasticity is a really
1: broad phenomenon. It's, it's persistent change that happens in the brain that isn't, you know, the normal developmental growth can be called neuroplasticity. So any, any, any learning is evidence of neuroplasticity happening. Um, it's, it's certainly seems to be the case that, that children have more of it in, in, in many contexts. But, you know, we're, we're, all of our brains continue to be plastic and continue to, change and reorganize at, at all kinds of different levels as we learn new things and do new things.
0: And I, I think that carries a lot of impact for um, rehab professionals and, and OTs who specifically work with people who've had nerve injuries or neurodegenerative disease, and knowing that the brain's ability to rewire is still there and to learn new things is still there, um, which hopefully can help to increase function.
1: Yeah, and there's, there's the, the limits of how much the brain can, can be changed is a, a wide open question, especially because of the techniques, there are some neuromodulation techniques that exist to try to facilitate this process and we don't know yet how well they work. Um, not, or rather, there is much debate about how well they work. Um, but there may be, you know, give, give, neuroscientists as a whole 10 years to settle these debates tomorrow more and there may be some like well if you want to you know increase you know learning like just come and you know, apply this do this brain stimulation pattern and and we'll be able to to increase the ability of this of this area to, to force new connections etc all these um that you know the the when we talk about the limits of plasticity like that's not even the limits are not necessarily
0: a fixed thing very cool and that's, that's very interesting and maybe a little hard to comprehend, um, how the limits aren't fixed. Um, but I do want to ask if you could talk to us a little bit about the organization of neural maps or maybe just specifically what are some of the things that happen in the brain when someone with a nerve injury or amputation, um, undergoes training or neuro rehab. This is a great question because there are some
1: Common wisdoms in the field that are more recent information proves incorrect. So there, there is a story about, about amputations, which is that when you lose, say, your, your arm, the area of your brain that used to control your arm starts being connected instead to, it's going to be your face because the face is the, is a, is a, on the cortex is an adjacent part of your body. And might respond to face sensation and that mismatch between, between the the type of sensation you're receiving and the type of sensation you're, you're expecting caught and caused phantom pain and phantom sensation. Uh, and this change is sometimes referred to in the context of maladaptive plasticity, which is cortical plasticity that's, you know, making your life worse. This idea that, that when a portion of the brain loses its connection to the body, the adjacent part of the cortex takes it over. It's been really well established in cellular level and in monkey studies um, and other animals. But the problem is th- there's just not a lot of evidence for that actually happening at a functional level in humans. And we don't see these amputees. We don't see the deafferented part of the brain, part of the brain that's lost sensory connection from the body responding to sensation on the, on the face in, in the way that this, this classic story suggests. Instead, it actually seems to respond more to the opposite hand. Th- that whole sort of story of, of the adjacent brain area taking over is sort of underlies a lot of people's understanding about how phantom, uh, phantom pain and phantom sensation work. Um, and I think that, that underlying process just isn't, doesn't seem to be happening. We don't yet know what is causing phantom pain and sensation. The, the theory that I favor is that phantom pain and sensation are mechanisms to maintain the original cortical representation and prevent it from changing. Um, prevent it from losing the representation of the, of the missing, of the missing hand. So let um, particularly work out of Tamar Macon's lab, uh, in the UK. Talking about that and, and I have a study from my postdoctoral work that we're, that is, uh, hopefully will be published soon, talking about this in the, in the sensory system, some of this data that I just described.
0: That's fascinating. Yeah. Thank you. And it, specific to, to phantom pain, uh, I've heard from hand therapists and occupational therapists, uh, that mirror therapy can be used. Um, and kind of what you said about how sensation from the lost limb can sometimes be reflected in the opposite limb. Uh, what does that suggest about mirror therapy or that relationship? Yeah, mirror therapy is great. You know, like most new discoveries,
1: its initial its initial effectiveness was very overhyped, but it does seem to be real and effective in in many cases and. You know, it has no side effects. So great. You know, definitely it's a great therapy. Um, the, the why exactly it works is really hard to say because this is one where the theory was that this brain area was getting this mismatch sensation from other parts of the body. And by, by creating this, this mirror setup where, where motor, your motor commands to your hand. Um, become aligned with the sensory experience of movement of your hand in the, in the natural ways, it is going to reduce the, the phantom sensations caused by the cortical remapping, except that's the cortical remapping that doesn't actually happen. So that's not why it's happening. Why, why phantom, uh, why mirror therapy works. And is not 100% clear why it works. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that, certainly think it's possible that these inter connections, the opposite side of the brain, sensation from the opposite hand, affecting the other, the, the, uh, the, the part of the, the disconnected part of the brain, could be contributing to, to why exactly mirror therapy works.
0: And I guess I wanted to ask you, because you are so knowledgeable on this topic, but why would you believe it's important for a rehabilitation professional to be aware of some of these underlying neural functions?
1: I think that understanding the underlying neural mechanisms of a problem can sometimes help you see it in in more depth and also find other solutions that may not be obvious. Um, You know, if the... The development of mirror therapy was based on a theory of understanding how the brain works. That theory happened to be wrong, but nevertheless, people would not have tried mirror therapy without that under, without having this theory of how the brain works in hand. Um, knowing what these patients are likely to go through, knowing what the causes are, uh, depending on your, on your, your clients, some of them are really helped by having an under, deeper understanding of what they're going through. Uh, particularly for, for phantom stuff, which many people can dismiss as being, you know, quote unquote, all in your head, giving them this understanding that this is this, you know, neurological
0: phenomenon that's somewhat understood, but is very real, uh, can be really useful for them. That's a great point. Um, I would definitely agree with that. And I think any client wants to know more fully what exactly is going on with them. And if a therapist or anyone that they're working with can, Provide that information that's gonna give them some level of comfort. Yeah.
1: For, for, you know, for most human beings, the worst, the worst thing of all is really helplessness and anything you can do to give them a sense of, of, of control. And for some people, knowledge will do that.
0: You have uh, a review on cortical plasticity, uh, in rehab for upper extremity peripheral nerve injury coming out, uh, I think next year. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, apparently it's coming out this, this fall, but I only just learned that. Okay. Um, Very yeah, cool. Cool. Uh,
1: what, what did you find in uh, completing this review? So uh, did this with uh, one of our students here at uh, WashU, Patrick Zink, um, and we found that th- there's not a lot of research that's really been done in peripheral nerve injury rehabilitation. Um people don't seem to study it very much. Um, a lot of this stuff on unilateral injuries is in stroke and some of it's in APTs, and, and there's not a lot in there, but there's, there's a handful of rehabilitation methods that use cortical plasticity to try to, to, to try to help out these clients and we were able to connect like okay what what is what are the main mechanisms of cortical plasticity that are happening there's you know, maybe about four of them which therapies are using which of these mechanisms, and therefore which of the, and which of these mechanisms are really more well understood and, and reliable and well demonstrated as opposed to just kind of theories that we that may or may not be true and really and we are able to to give a sense of like okay, of these seven-ish therapies that are out there, like which ones are actually based, more based on a sound theoretical understanding of how the brain changes after injury in the body and which ones
0: are less so? Very interesting. That sounds like it can be very informative and helpful to any rehab professional or anyone interested in this topic.
1: Yeah, we've, we've, it's going to be coming out in uh, a journal sort of occupational therapy. So we hope that it is meant to be something that is a quick review for clinicians, for therapists to, to understand what might be useful in their practice.
0: Awesome, yeah. And then could you maybe tell us some of the therapies that you found were uh, most based in theory and um, are a, are a good fit? Yeah, I was uh,
1: just pulled up a figure here to make sure I got it right about which are the more and less justified forms of therapy that are that are available for for patients with peripheral nerve injury we really found that that a lot of the the well justified stuff was the was a lot of more traditional stuff you get uh traditional sensory reeducation activity based sensory sensory reeducation these are and at the the other end of the spectrum the one we really don't recommend is uh, there's selective deafferentation strategies where 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 you temporarily um, reduce sensation, you know, with, be done with, with anesthetics or, or, or nerve blocks or, um, things like that. These are, these are based on the theory that, that when part of the brain loses sensation, adjacent parts expand and become more sensitive, which, as I've said elsewhere, doesn't seem to be the case at a functional level in humans. And, you know, things in the middle, you get, you get, um, things like mental motor imagery, which, Imagining movements and it seems to be like a low-grade version of motor commands in the brain. They're, they, it's like a partial motor command in the brain, but it's, it really is using some of the same, same brain mechanisms as real motor commands. So these have value for, for influencing the brain in the same way that, that practice would, except, of course, you can imagine a lot of things you can't physically do. Um, especially for somebody with injuries. And mirror mirror visual feedback also comes down pretty you know, kind of in the middle, like you don't really know why this is happening. But it also involves it doesn't just rely on this, you know, adjacent parts of the brain taking over.
0: Part other other mechanisms are supposed to be involved also. And again, that article, the review I mean, sounds like it's gonna be very informational and helpful. For practitioners who want to make sure their interventions are based in evidence and supported by theory. I certainly hope so. <laughs> I appreciate it. Do you maybe have a, a clinical example or a story you'd like to share from one of your studies where you saw a positive outcome?
1: One of my favorite um, stories of really seeing how, how a, a client's larger perspective really mattered for more than the the biological facts for their life um when doing these these studies of hand transplants we also looked at hand replants which were patients who um who, who had an amputation but you know they, they they got their arm they were able to surgically reattach it within you know 12 24 hours whatever mm-hmm. time span they needed um and and these people are much more functional than uh they're somewhat more, more functional than the hand transplant patients, but of course they don't have to have all the, uh, the suppressant stuff because it. it's their arm. So they're, it's much, it's a very good outcome if you can get it. And there was one patient who we, we brought in and he was cheerful and he's told jokes about what, uh, the EMTs when he's in the ambulance and, you know, picking up his arm off the floor before the dogs would get it and things like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, power saws in your garage, man. Right? Be careful with those things, I'm just saying. Um, <laughs> it's a good warning to yeah. Our Oh, yeah. That and fireworks. Man, do not like fireworks by hand. But this this particular patient, he was, you know, we asked, does he have any pain? He's like, no, I feel great. He's um, like, well, great. Like, here's the, the pain survey that we have so that we can get lots of detail, you know, about this. But, you know, I guess it'll be easy if you don't have any pain. And I'll be like, no, I don't have any pain. It's easy. And his wife is helping with it. he's like, well, see, this form asks about like burning. Like, do you experience any burning? He's like, oh yeah, we get the burning sensations sometimes. Like, how about any like grinding sensations? Like, yeah, I get the grinding sometimes. And, the, and, and every, they weren't very high on the pain scale, but if you actually ask them specific questions about like the sensations that, that most people would call painful, like, it's he, he, got those. It's got them at a, at a moderate amount. It's like, oh, but, I, but it's not pain. Like that's, that's the, that's the feeling that my arm is still there. All these—it's a great example of the of of how context matters so much for the experience of pain. Where where this guy, because he was the right kind of person, had the right kind of attitude about this. These all these sensations that that these nociceptive sensations that that could be contribute to pain were were for him is positive signs. And and he sort of thought himself as
0: not having any pain at all. That's really interesting. Um, it's amazing how everyone has a different level of, I don't know what to call it, resilience or uh, in his case, pain tolerance. But that context is so important. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's not even point. about like
1: pain tolerance. It's about this is getting farther afield. But there's so much we we know a, a lot about how mu- how little of pain is based on the no- this nociceptive input. I mean, the classic example. It is like after like a hard workout or exercise, like you're sore and that's good. Yeah. Like, but that same amount of, like that, that amount of pain in, that same amount of nociceptive input in another context would be painful and bad. But after a workout, like you're, you're happy to have that. And that feels good. Mm-hmm. Um, these are what makes pain, the experience of pain is so much, so much more than just the, the sensation.
0: Absolutely. I think that's an important thing to consider for, for therapists working with uh, this population as well. Um, context and, and everything that goes into the experience of pain. One question I like to ask all our guests, I call it, I like to call it the golden nugget segment. Um, so if you could say something to rehabilitation professionals to stress the importance of the relationship between the brain and function, what would you say? What is your golden nugget? Golden nugget that I would like to give therapists is
1: that handedness is more complicated than you think it is. And as you think about, about people who have injuries to, to one or, or other impairments to one hand or another, um, we really try to understand how they, how they use those hands in their, in their daily life, how that varies I can go on for 20 minutes about how left-handers are not, in fact, mirror images of Um, right-handers. There are multiple asymmetries in the brain, in the motor system in the brain, some of which are handedness-related and some of which are not. And it is this complex phenomenon that's not all that well understood. And so many of methods and assessments in occupational therapy just aren't even asking the question of, of is your dominant hand injured? Is it not? How is that affecting your life? And that's something, you know, assess, or current assessments aren't looking for and to really be able to, to get into these, these patient, these clients lives, like,
0: that's something to keep an eye on. Absolutely. I would agree completely. Thank you so much. I think that's a valuable golden nugget. Thank you for your research. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me on, man. Yeah, of course. It was my pleasure. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening to how to OT tune in next time for another episode where we bring accessible and consumable research straight to you. I'm on
1: vacation. If you don't like your life, then you should go and change it. I'm on vacation every single day. Cause I love my occupation. single day hey, I'm on vacation every single day because I love my occupation hey, hey, I'm on vacation every single day every every single day everybody sour like a lemon tree I'm just smiling down upon my
0: enemies
1: Education. Luminate my future bright. so thankful for everything Rejuvenate in my inner light as I work hard for all I need Open arms, embracing life, and all the witch you gave to me I work, it pays off, I'm happy now, it's paying me Close my eyes sometimes and feel as if I blow away I love life, I live and enjoy the ride
0: every single day cuz i love my
1: occupation hey i'm on vacation every single day every every single day hey i'm on vacation every single day cuz i love my occupation hey i'm on vacation if you don't like your life then you should go and change it Go and change it.
0: If you don't like your life, then you should go and change it. If you don't like your life, then you should go and change it.